Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. Where is it? Put your finger on it. Where's our greatest weakness? I'll give you a weakness and then I want you to, I want you to share with me. Our bodies are weak. Yes? Okay. Unseen bacteria, etc. Okay. We fall over. We hurt ourselves. Okay. We could be knocked out for weeks. Our bodies are weak. But that's not our greatest weakness. Where's our greatest weakness as humans? You can yell it out here. What's our greatest weakness? Oh, okay. You went straight for the spiritual. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a very deep answer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it a bit more of a, of a, of a human, non, non-spiritual response. Our, our greatest weakness as humans, apart from sin. Where, where are we the weakest? I couldn't hear. Oh, okay. Still, you're talking about our body? Our body, the fact that there's a, a clock ticking down, yeah? There's the weakness of the body. So sickness, death, aging. But it's not our weakest point. Spirit. What do you mean? <laughs> Actually, if you're talking about like our human spirit, it's the strongest part in us <laughs> provided it's under the guidance of the Holy Spirit it can actually control our body yeah we are weak we are weak we are weak morally again I'm trying to talk about it without sin but you're absolutely right so we are physically weak we are spiritually weak apart from the grace of God we are morally weak we're weak in all of those ways the reason I'm asking the question remember is we want to look at our own life there's something special in this chapter for us yeah Pick one. Okay, either one I would have said I agree with you, okay? Brain and heart, in the language of the Bible, it's one and the same thing. Brain and heart, mind and heart. What do you mean? What do you mean you're weak in the mind? Yeah, well, you're a human. Physically, it's our most, like, if any aspect of that information, our bodies will fail. Are you talking about the brain as an organ? Okay, you're very deep and going all medical on me. No, I'm not thinking. I'm not thinking of the brain as an organ, but mind and heart. Mind and heart is the closest response. What happens inside the brain and the heart? Yeah. Okay. Our yeah. Okay. So now we've mentioned thoughts and we've mentioned emotions. Let's just put all of that together and just say the human mind is our weakest point. We are susceptible there to nightmares. And I don't mean the nightmares you have when you're, when you're sleeping. I'll give you one, one thing that's crushing. St. Paul once said, I despaired even of life itself. I was crushed in my mind. The point of greatest despair, that depression, that darkness, that, that death, while you're alive. That's what St. Paul actually called it. He called it, I was dead. And I said to God, in the midst of my deadness, my mental deadness, I actually need you to raise me from the dead. 
Can you see where I'm going? Okay? He asked God that and he said, God, let me experience such darkness, such mental weakness, so that I could experience what it's like to be raised from the dead. This idea of being raised from the dead is really important. Okay? Before we read this incident, each one of us is this young man. Each one of us. A Christian, the greatest thing that a Christian can boast about is being raised from the dead. And if you haven't been raised from the dead, I want you to think about it. What does it mean to be raised from the dead? To be raised from the dead spiritually or to be raised from the dead physically, which is the greatest miracle? I can hear spiritual. Does anyone think physical? Spiritual? You're all giving the spiritual because it sounds like it's the right answer, right? What was a greater miracle? God the Father raising the Lord Jesus' holy body from the dead or or, um, Jesus appearing to Saul of Tarsus and putting him on the road to repentance by enlightening his mind and saying to him, I am the one that you're persecuting. I am God. Return to me. What's the greater miracle? Ah, no one's calling out now, huh? <laughs> you too scared? What's the greater miracle? Jesus, after four days in the tomb, raising Lazarus after corruption. Or going to have dinner at Zacchaeus's, at Zacchaeus's house. And then after dinner, Zacchaeus says, I'm done. I'm done with cheating. I'm going to give my money to the poor and I'm done. And I'll, and I'll make it up to the people that I cheated. What's the greater miracle? Be honest. Say as it is. Which one? Why? What a wonderful answer. God said how many words? Yeah, pretty much. It was like Lazarus come forth. That's it, right? Yeah? I wonder how many words it took for Zacchaeus to repent. I wonder how many words Jesus spoke to the Jews who didn't repent. Can you see what I'm getting at? What's greater to do something with a few words or the thing that requires many words. What's greater? You tell me, if you have a friend and you want to convince them of something and you just say to them, trust me, and they're convinced, is that like a great accomplishment on your part? Or if you have another friend, you speak to them for an hour and they're still unconvinced. Another hour, I'm getting there, Another five months, they finally turn around. What's a greater accomplishment? The second one, right? Okay. One of the fathers said, the greater miracle is to raise the spiritually dead, not the physically dead. So watch this. St. Paul explains, funnily enough, in the letter to the Ephesians, a very simple thing for us, and it's got practical applications for our life. The greater miracle is when Jesus raised me from my sin. 
when Jesus raised me from the depths of my sin and granted me his victory over that sin, over that evil habit, over that evil way of thinking, over any darkness, and he liberates me from that. Just like he did the man that was demon-possessed and he cast out the demons. That liberation from bondage to the devil is a greater miracle than the raising of the body of his only begotten son. Because if you think about it, the raising of the body of his only begotten son was just that. It was the raising of the body. The only begotten son didn't die. As God, he, did, he didn't suffer in his divinity. But as God-man, he tasted death in the flesh. It's no big deal if God raises a body, if, even if it's his own body. It's no big deal. The big deal is to raise someone who's spiritually dead. You have received the greater resurrection. All that remains for you is to receive the lesser one. When's the lesser one? On the day of judgment, right? What's going to happen? You're going to get back up again, yeah? No big deal. So what? Do you know why we're confident that we're going to rise from the dead? Do you know why we're confident? Why are we confident? What does it say in the book of Revelation? What's our reason for confidence? How do you know you're going to get back up again and go to go to heaven? How do you know? It's very logical. It's actually very logical. Has he done the greater resurrection for you? So will he then do the lesser resurrection for you? It follows, doesn't it? Okay, and that's what Jesus said. He goes, those who have risen in the first resurrection will rise. Those who died and didn't rise, will, they will die the second death. Okay, so this is important for us. Each one of us is this man. The comfort for St. Paul, because St. Paul was going through mental struggles. He was struggling he didn't want to leave this church, but against his will after three years, and I'll show you how much he loved them, he was wrenched away from this church. God wanted to comfort St. Paul and comfort the community by reminding them of something. On the one hand, St. Paul, you raised them from the dead. I don't want you to forget that, so I'm going to look after them. Don't be, don't be scared. Don't be scared. For the rest of them, they needed to understand that this guy wasn't some random preacher that came and preached to them about this Jesus fellow. This man raised them from the dead, or God, through the power of God. They rose from the dead. Listen to this beautiful story about this Eutychus. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. In a, in a, win, in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking... He fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. So this is the central miracle of this chapter. So he's leaving Ephesus against his will, and this is the miracle. He's preaching them to them at midnight, so they're keen to hear the word of God. He doesn't tell them straight away that this is his last night, and he's never going to see them again. He keeps that to himself. They're eager to listen. The room is packed. It says there's many lamps in the upper room when it got dark, and this young man 
not through negligence, just through tiredness, falls asleep and dies. What a wonderful time. What a wonderful time, okay, to fall out of a window, okay? And, and some of the fathers see this was Satan, like Satan trying to ruin, to ruin a gathering of life by injecting death. And so Paul's not phased. He goes down and then he prays when he lies down on him like Elijah and he says his life is in him. In other words, he raised him from the dead and then they brought him up. So the second half of the talk is different. Can you imagine a Bible study? You come to Bible study, right? And imagine Abuna's here and he gives the Bible study. The first half of the Bible study, okay, it's about, you know, learning from the scriptures. Then all of a sudden a tragic accident happens, okay, and someone falls down outside, passes away. They call Abuna. Abuna goes outside. Okay, all the doctors have said they've passed away. Abuna raises them from the dead. And then that person comes in and the Bible study continues. What kind of Bible study is that going to be? And so the father said the tone of that gathering must have changed dramatically. Like, and they're all, because like, from now on, we're not just listening, like, not that, like, we're listening to the word of life, but look at that, as if, as if anyone's looking at Abuna, as if everyone's looking at that guy. Like, look at him. We saw him two minutes ago. Look at him. That's, that's life back from the dead. And they all would have been struck, but that's what happened to me. That's exactly what happened to me in the waters of baptism. I died and I rose. But more importantly, I know exactly what my life was like three months ago, a year ago, three years before this guy came. I was a slave. I was a slave to this. I was a slave to that. And I don't know how, but it's freaky. But that guy, when he came and he told us about Jesus and he told us about the plan of redemption, and we were baptized, there's a power in our life that's undeniable. We did rise from the dead. A greater resurrection than Lazarus. Lazarus was only physically dead for four days. It's no big deal. Try being demon-possessed for years. <coughs> Try being demon-possessed by a legion of demons, a good couple of thousand for years greater resurrection. It's the same when slavery to sin is demon possession. So these people would have understood, this is what God did for my life. This is the message that St. Paul and the Church of Ephesus received here. They would never see his face again. But the gift that he gave them is the greatest gift that you and I have ever received and could ever receive from God. We can't receive a greater gift. What do you want from God? What do you want? Have a mental image of what do you want from God? Are you thinking? I won't say any of them out loud because I'm sure that the list is still coming up. Yeah? All of those, I'm sure, are wonderful gifts from God. Incomparable to the greatest gift. You know, St. Paul even says that when we pray, that's how we should approach God. We should say to him, I understand very, very well that you are not going to be stingy with me. It's not possible. If you've given me the greater or the greatest gift, which is your only son and resurrection by him, you're not going to be stingy with the other gifts. It, it actually affects the way that we think about God. We do not approach a stingy God. We do not supplicate a God who, has, who is holding back the best. Actually flip it around. We approach a God who has given us 
the best. The best as in his son, but then how does that actualize in my life? Power over sin. Deliverance from sin. That is the greatest gift. And then he's going to go on. He's, give, he's going to give instructions. Now, the instructions he's going to give are going to be to the bishops slash priests of the church of Ephesus. But they're all for us at the end of the day to learn from for our, for our relationship with God. He's going to sail now from verse 13. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos. There intending to take Paul on board, for so he'd given orders, intending himself to go on foot, like we said earlier. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. In verse 15, we sailed from there. And the next day came opposite Clos. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogelum. The next day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that we would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Like we said earlier, he's not hurrying because he's going to vac- vacation there. He's hurrying because God the Holy Spirit revealed to him in different ways. Um, you're going to suffer at Jerusalem, so hurry up and get to where you're going to suffer. Hurry up. Okay, it's time. From Miletus, now we always read this little passage every time there's the commemoration of a patriarch in the church or a bishop that's passed away. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they'd come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Can I stop there? I want to share something with you. What we want to walk away from this is, if God has not withheld from me the greatest gift of raising me from the dead... How does St. Paul respond to this gift? He responds as a pastor. He responds as a teacher. But every Christian responds in the same way. He says to them, listen, I serve the Lord with all humility. This is such a high bar. I was astounded to know what all humility means. Do you know what all humility means? Like, why don't you just say, I serve the Lord with humility? Does anyone know what all humility might mean? Have a guess. What do you think? It says, I serve the Lord with all humility. Come on, some ideas. Try its variance with some humility. What might that imply? <coughs> Maybe all humility is referring to like yeah, beautiful. He does. He is like Jesus in the way that he he suffers humbly and serves humbly. Like complete submission. Complete submission. That's another beautiful meaning. Yeah. Tell me about that complete part. Tell me about the all part. We all know what humility is. Okay. What about the all part? The all. I don't know. Can you be humble but not all? Can you be humble but partially humble? Yeah, yeah, well done. Some expectation. Some expectation of reward? Yeah. Yeah? So be humble, no expectation of reward. That's typical of a humble person. All humility. No pride. No pride? Whoa. It's a bit of a stretch. Put your hand up, and you have to put your hand up. 
if you serve the Lord in your life with all humility. I want your hand to go up. No, no fingers are rising. No, not even internal hands are going up, right? Okay, no? Okay, mention a human that you know that serves the Lord with all humility or has served the Lord all their life with all humility. We're getting... Do you know anyone like that? First of all, do you know everyone's inner thoughts throughout all their life? No, okay, so we'll discard that it's even humanly possible to serve the Lord with all humility. Perfectly. Okay, he's speaking in a human sense. Ready? All humility, a very simple definition. Humble at all times, with all people, in every way. Can we leave the at all times part? Because that's incredibly difficult. And with all people part. Just the all people part. Are you humble with everyone? Those that like you and those that don't like you? Equally humble. Okay, let's make it really hard now, okay? Humble in thoughts, humble in words, humble in deeds, humble in attitudes, and then add to all people at all times. Can you do that? Insane. Absolutely another level of humility. That's St. Paul. But that's true humility, okay? This is a very natural response. If I was raised from the dead, like if I remembered that I was raised from the dead, how could I be arrogant? What about this part here when he goes, because this is very important to St. Paul. He says, with many tears and trials which happened to me. With many tears. What's the place of tears in our life? What's the place? When do we cry? Sadness, frustration, like everybody else, right? Okay, are there, are there anything, like, are there spiritual tears? First of all, are all those other tears worthwhile? Like, they might give vent to our emotions, but is there a reward, a reward for any of those others? No, they're just human. They give vent to emotions. What about spiritual tears? What are they? Yeah, tears of repentance. What else? Tears of spiritual joy. What else? There's many. Just give me some examples. St. Paul cried lots of these. So there's... Empathetic tears. Yeah. Yeah, tears for others, whether it's for their suffering or for their salvation. What about you? Now, what about you and me? If I have been raised from the dead, like as in... Think of it, think of it literally. Imagine you had gone and I had gone down. Okay. Every sinner that's really experienced sin and resurrection from sin understands very well that they were in the depths of Satan, understands very well. Any addict to sin, anyone who was ever overwhelmed by a habit that God raised them from understands very well that they were in the depths of the devil. That's a biblical description in the book of Revelations, in the depths of Satan. To be raised from the depths of Satan, the depths of hell, and to be raised to newness of life, it would be very natural to be all humble or to struggle towards that. And also very natural to cry tears of repentance, tears of joy at being delivered. They don't always have to be external, but at least internal, at least that sense of, I can't believe it. This is a gift beyond my imagination. It's a gift beyond my request. 
This is a gift unparalleled. If I'm alone grateful for this gift, I actually don't need another gift. Think of Lazarus. You know, when Lazarus rose from the dead, do you know they had like a dinner, a little supper for him? What would they have been talking about? Has anyone ever imagined what would the conversation have been like? What do you think? What are people asking him? What's he saying? What they look like when you saw them? What did they look like? The demons? What what they look like? Because remember, this is before Jesus' resurrection. What was it like? Did it hurt? Who was around you? How'd they get there? Like you were gone for ages. And he'd say, yeah, it felt like an eternity. Didn't feel like four days. Tell us about it. I don't imagine Lazarus would have been able to stomach a morsel of bread. I can only imagine that he would be weeping the whole time, unable to fathom that he was actually seated next to Jesus and risen from the dead. I don't imagine he'd live his life in the same way. I don't imagine he'd ask for anything else. Like, what's he going to ask for? A new car? What's he going to ask for? Like, what's to ask for? What is to ask for? I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. And this, this is St. Paul's inner feeling. This is the inner feeling of a Christian. The incredible gratitude that we're called to experience stems from this, that we have been raised from the dead and on that basis we look forward to the next simpler, easier resurrection. We've been raised from the dead and that's why we strive for all humility and that's why we are genuinely grateful, genuinely repentant. We don't have to try, it's natural, natural. And he's gonna go on, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He's basically describing how he was as a shepherd. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Very, very quickly. Aren't you bothered that you're going to Jerusalem to suffer? Why would I be bothered? The way St. Paul thinks is the way that we're encouraged to think. He says, none of these things move me. Why? Because, what would you say? What's his reasoning? Put it in your own words. Why aren't you scared? I've already been resurrected. Worst case scenario, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's that? What's that? I'm not talking like me, I'm talking like St. Paul. What's that? If, if I was St. Paul, you just said to me, I'm going to physically die. What is that? Like, what are you talking about? Some, like, explain to me, what is it? What do you mean? What's physically dying? How does it work? Yeah, what does it mean? What are you saying to me? Where am I going? So how am I dying? 
I'm not, I'm not talking as one of us, okay? I'm, I'm talking like St. Paul. There's no death. Yeah, like we pray, Abuna prays, there's no death, but there's a departure. We don't die. Look, Christians, we don't say this often enough. We don't say it often enough. We don't die. People outside the church die. We don't die. We sleep. We don't die. We don't even experience death. Separation from body and spirit isn't death. It's not death. Death in the Old Testament was terrifying. Terrifying. There's no coming back from it. And you're condemned to eternal separation from God. We experience the natural separation, but the spirit goes on to eternal bliss. There's no death for Christians. So what's to be scared of? Where should I be today? If St. Paul was here, what would the answer be? Where should he be? Where should St. Paul be right now when he says, I'm not scared of these things? Where should he be? Imagine Jesus hadn't appeared to him on the road. Where would he be? Just follow the trajectory of his life. What are you scared of? Follow the trajectory. Yeah, well done. Okay, good guess. Okay, at one of two, you scored, okay? That's where he'd be. So would I. Why am I saying this, okay? We face a real, real problem, okay, living today, and we all struggle, I think it's safe to say, we all struggle with feeling discontentment. We all struggle with comparing ourselves to others. We all struggle, especially as we're growing up and we're seeking to build a future for ourselves and a lot of things are on our mind. We all struggle with, I would like this and I'm not happy about this and I'm not happy about that. To be honest, to be honest, it's a common struggle for all of us, but if we go to how God would have us tackle this struggle, he doesn't waste any time. He says, listen, you are a Christian. You've been raised two times already. You've been raised in baptism spiritually and you've been raised spiritually from sin if God ever granted you the grace to conquer sin. Those resurrections, that power of the resurrection is enough to, 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 for anything else to pale in significance. Nothing is going to add to you that, that's not going to be taken away. But this can't be taken away. The resurrection from sin, if we cling to him, an eternal life can't be taken away from us if we cling to him. But everything material can. We enjoy it for a little bit of time and then it goes away. He's going to finish off and he's going to say bye. And indeed, now I know that you all among whom I've gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. In verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So this is to the shepherds especially, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves heretics and the like, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch. And this, this is radical. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this verse, okay? Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. What do you think of that verse? What are your thoughts? When was the longest time you cried for, just out of curiosity? 
Does anyone want to share their answers or is it a bit embarrassing? Could be about anything. You haven't cried in the last year? Last three? Have you ever cried every day for a week? Every day for a month? It sounds weird, isn't it? Yeah? I'm deliberately... He's weird. He is weird. Like St. Paul, he's weird. Okay? I'm just trying to share with you. But look at his heart. He's, he's like us. Remember we said he's like us at the beginning. He's not a man of steel. The guy experienced darkness probably more than you and I will ever experience. And he confessed at one time, I said to God, I'm done. I'm done. I'm, I'm as good as dead. I'm done. I'm done. Finished. You want to raise me from the dead? Raise me because I'm not doing this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm done. So he reached rock bottom. Finished. Okay? What's this? Is he exaggerating? Is he lying? Is this hyperbole? Let's read it again, okay? Because he's either lying or exaggerating or telling the truth. Let's read it again. That verse. Verse 31. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So every time he sits with someone in confession, every time he sits and preaches to someone, tears on that person's behalf are flowing from his eyes out of great love and fear for that person's salvation. That's his default setting. He talks about God's love and it's Rivers of water flow from his eyes. He talks about heaven and the judgment. Rivers of water flow from his eyes. He talks about repenting from sin. Rivers of water flow from his eyes. You speak to him any time about salvation. Rivers of water. He's not normal. He's actually not normal. You may know some very sensitive people in your life. Okay? You may know. When they talk to you and they, they, something touches them, okay, the tears flow. Imagine St. Paul is super, super. You know, the Lord Jesus was said to be like that. So that's why some people think that that's the reason they said they mistook him for Jeremiah, that he's very sensitive. He's very sensitive. So what's wrong with us? What's wrong with us if we're not that sensitive? And again, it's not about the physical, but it's about the feeling. It's about the inner, the inner feelings of love, gratitude, Repentance. Like these are inner feelings. Okay, it's not about physical tears, although they are very natural, but in some people more than others, they are physical, whereas in other people it's more internal. But where's the feelings in our relationship with God? Sometimes that can get lost. Sometimes you can hear when you're struggling with prayer, that's okay, force yourself because it's part of being disciplined. Okay, or you don't feel like having confession or reading the Bible, but you still do because it's part of being disciplined. But where, is the, where are the tender emotions in our relationship with God? Like where is that sweetness? Where's that, like, where's that, you know, we talk about intimacy with God. Where is that? Where is that? When I pray, where I read the Bible, when I sing hymns, when I remember what God has done in my life more than anything else. Something we don't often do. If I'm really honest, if I'm cold towards God, I'm probably cold towards my family and friends as well. Think about the people that you really love, really, really love. Think about them right now. Think about them. 
Go into your heart quickly. In the last week, what feelings have you had towards them? Not necessarily expressed with your mouth. What feelings have you had towards them? The people that you love. More often than not, if I'm tender in my relationships with humans, I'll be tender in my relationship with God. If I'm cold with God, I'm probably cold with others. And that's why when it says love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, if, if I am, and that's why we're called to love each other fervently, if you want to increase in your love for God, you don't have to, be, you have to, you have to do miraculous things. Love your friend deeply. Love your brother and sister. Love your family members deeply. Like actually let your emotions come out like they're buried, right? What happens when you remember something nice someone has done for you? Uh, something's happening inside, right? What's happening? What's happening? I want to hear what's happening. No one's done something nice for you recently? Come on, remember something really nice someone has done for you recently or even a long time ago. What's happening inside you right now? What's happening? Like you're coming joyful your heart's coming soft. Well done. I love the way that you said it. You're becoming joyful and your heart's becoming soft. soft. It's actually, that's exactly how the Bible describes it. So soften, let's soften our hearts to God and soften our hearts to one another by remembering what God and others have done for us. Very, very simple. Very, very simple. Okay? And that's, what, that's why when they talk about watering the heart, they talk about watering the heart with tears. But it doesn't have to be these physical ones. But enough that I remember what God has done for me, if I feel that softening, that means the drops are falling on my heart. It's a very practical way to love God, to love God. And then he's going to say, Bye, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In verse 32, and just because St. Paul's got a sense of humour, you know, he says to them goodbye, and I'm going to leave you to God now. Yeah? He actually doesn't. Because a few years later, he writes to them the epistle to the Ephesians. Okay? He didn't know that he was going to write the epistle, but he couldn't resist. Verse 33. This is very important. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You know that a priest or a bishop or anyone consecrated, but especially priests and bishops, the way that the Bible says they're supposed to live, they're supposed to live from the altar. So you and I know that they actually have a right, a right to administer spiritual things to the congregation and then to receive their earthly substance from the congregation. But St. Paul never demanded or even asked this right of certain populations, for example, like the Corinthians, because they would later accuse him of stealing and that sort of thing. And so you'll find that most, most servants of the altar, most priests, for example, they live from the altar. They serve God full time and the church then looks after their material needs. It doesn't have to be the case, but they're certainly entitled to it according to the word of God. St. Paul didn't use it. But he said something radical. I didn't even want it. And I actually worked with my hands to support myself, to support the servants who are with me, to support the church, and to support the poor. 
So there's like a fourfold virtue. And he says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And we know that these are the words handed down to us through the tradition and they're nowhere to be found in the Gospels. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And finally, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would see his face no more and they accompanied him to the ship. I'm not the sensitive kind, but if I was and I was reading this chapter, this would be a chapter where you'd weep all the way through. The scene is a goodbye scene and it resembles the scene of all of our goodbyes that we ever farewell people that we know on earth. Farewelling them at different phases of life and then farewelling them to heaven. What's happening again? What are they doing? They're weeping freely. How many times has weeping been in this, gospel, in this, in this chapter? How many times? Three? Why? Why? I want the answer from you. Why? Or find me another chapter in the Bible where there's so much different kinds of weeping. Come on. Why? Yeah, but he's always crying. Okay? But that's a good example. But, but, but his whole thing is a lament. But, but why, why? I don't understand. Is there a reason? There's no, there's no sadness. Like, he's going to a better place. He's going to suffer. They're all sort of spiritual tears. They're all love and affection. Uh, in the Gospels, there's a period of weeping, like in the garden. Yeah, yeah, but, but this whole chapter, this whole chapter. By the way, there's a weeping I didn't mention. There's actually four instances, but three are explicit and one is implicit. When young Eutychus died, what do you think they were doing? Uh, if this chapter could be shown on screen, there are people crying on four different occasions. One for the poor boy who died. What was the second one? I served the Lord with all humility, with many, many. He had to say many tears, many tears. That was the second one. What was the third one? I warned everyone night and day for three years with tears. That's the third one. And the fourth one, they wept freely. So they don't, the Bible, like God, the Holy Spirit, doesn't just want to say wept, wept, wept. No, look at what's joined. Freely. Many tears. Why? And none of them are depressing. None of them are depressing. Even the ones crying for poor Eutychus. I bet you after he was raised from the dead, they cried some more. But good tears. Tears of joy. What's the message for us? If we put the resurrection and the, the affection, the spiritual affection... Remember, we're not just talking about these tears, but spiritual affection. What's the message? Put the two together. Put the two together. What's a beautiful message that you get? There's the resurrection of every believer at the core of this chapter. And then the chapter is drenched in spiritual tears, different kinds of spiritual affections. 
What do you get from this chapter for you? You can share. What do you get? Uh, like it's, it's going to be the, to like leave the world and like God. But you should know that you're going to like a better place, a safer place. Like Paul was rushing to go to Christian. It wasn't bitter about leaving the world. You left yeah. You actually said something very insightful about spiritual tears. When God gifts us with spiritual tears, he actually lets us see things the way they really are. The way they really are, not the way that they seem. Because spiritual tears are a gift from God. You can't fake it, okay? I'm talking about the internal ones and the external ones. Because we should all, we should all have affections towards God. Okay, like I said, some people, their affections are shown on the outside as well as on the inside. But it doesn't have to be that. But yeah, enlightenment is one of the gifts of spiritual tears. If we say all of us have experienced resurrection from sin, resurrection from spiritual death, why do you think the chapter is covered with tears? What's the core? easier question. What did we say earlier? How do you get to them? How do you get to spiritual tears? Can't fabricate it. You can't fake it. How do you get to it? It's a really simple way. When you understand the resurrection. Yeah, well done. Number one, okay, I need to understand what I've received. If I can think about the magnitude of the gift of resurrection that I've received, and then the spiritual affections will follow. I will love God with my heart. What's another way? Is it just the spiritual resurrection that I may have received from God? What else? What about all the ways that God has loved me? What happens when I recall all that? All the ways that people have loved me? The same sort of thing happens. The stirring inside me. You know, one of the verses of the Bible is actually really, really on this point. It says, stir up brotherly love. You know, when we feel cold towards other people, it's perfectly normal. Because that's just the kind of being we are. We don't maintain fervor. But we need to stir it up. So the beautiful take-home message, if, if I appreciate that I've been raised from the dead and have received so many gifts in addition to that from God, and I remember that, and I remember the goodness of others towards me, stir up affection towards God. Why would I want to do all that? Tell me that and we're finished. Why would I want to do all that? Why would I want to stir up my affections towards God and others? Besides loving God with all my heart and loving my neighbour as myself. Besides. What am I countering? What were these Ephesians desperately in need of? Now that they were losing Paul and they'd never see him again. What am I countering? You're going to say something? No, I was just going to say, like, the softening of my heart. Yeah. Yeah, I love your expression. That's exactly what the Bible says happens to all of our hearts. It gets hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
So every time you walk out of the church, you can imagine your heart goes from becoming very soft to becoming harder and harder. Every time you read the Bible and you're in the presence of God, it becomes softer again. Then in the world it gets hardened. Yeah, constant, beautiful softening of the heart. And what are we fighting against? What's what's a real fight that we all face? It's the opposite of thanksgiving. What's the, what's the? Despair. Despair is its extreme, but bring it low level. We all do it and we don't think it's a big deal, but it's a very nasty sin. I called it by a very elegant name, but it's really it. I called it discontentment, but what's the sin? Call it for what it is. Starts with G or C, depends on. What's discontentment, but don't say it like that. What's it called? Just say it like you would, like a primary school. Complaining, okay? We all love to complain, don't we? It's a heinous sin. Complaining is a heinous sin. That sin alone was responsible for all the children of Israel not making it into the promised land, dying. That sin was the root cause of their rebellion against God. That sin was destruction for them. Complaining comes from the absence of gratitude. That's all. And so we are softening our heart by recollecting God's love, especially the resurrection from the dead. We don't need anything else if we understand it like we did. He did, St. Paul. And we're also countering offensively complaining. Glory be to God forever. Amen. You're very patient, but does anyone make any final comments? Go for it. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.